following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Our study of Leviticus, and uh, we'll be looking at chapter 6 and 7. Chapter 6, starting in verse 8. And uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing. (laughs) All right. Uh, Leviticus chapter 6. Opted not to read the whole thing. But we'll read uh, a couple sections starting with uh, the beginning and the end. So verse 8, I think down to verse 13. And then we'll look at the end uh, at chapter 7. So follow me as I read. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command Aaron and his sons saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth on the altar all night until the morning, and the fire of the the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and put his linen undergarment on his body, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it, and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually, and it shall not go out. And then we'll jump all the way over to verse uh, 33, I believe. Um... Whoever among the sons of Aaron offers the blood of the peace offerings and the, and the fat shall have the right thigh for a portion. For the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, I have taken from the people of Israel out of the sacrifices of their peace offerings and have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel. This is the portion of Aaron and of his sons from the Lord's food. Uh, from food offerings from the day they were presented to serve as priests of the Lord. The Lord commanded this to be given to them by the people of Israel from the day that he anointed them. It is a perpetual due throughout their generations. This is the law of the burnt offering and the grain offering, of the sin offering, of the guilt offering, of the ordination offering, and of the peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. Okay, exciting stuff, and we we just love the book of Leviticus. And um, we do love the book of Leviticus, and it's hopefully you're enjoying this study. But oftentimes at first reading, it's a little bewildering. Um, And we'll kind of break this down a little bit. But but let me just start by... uh, asking you a little bit about um, what you worship and how you worship. Uh, it's, it's extremely important what you worship and, and how you worship those objects. And, and it's important because we know that what we worship shapes us. Okay, it molds, it really impacts and imprints who we are as a person, uh, how and what we worship. 
And of course, we think of worship, especially if we come from a Christian background, we use this word worship uh, pretty exclusively to speak of God. But if we use other words that could be synonyms like what you honor, what you respect, what you admire, what you look up to, who your heroes are, those are actually all also concepts for worship. And we're um, we, we want to worship God above all things, but we respect lots of things. We honor lots of things. We admire many things. And the reality is that uh, if we give it enough admiration, it does, it does shape us. And if you don't believe that, the, really the best, the best picture of this is uh, an Elvis impersonator. An Elvis impersonator. If you're too old to know who Elvis is, you can Google it later. There's lots of, I'm sure, good YouTube videos on that. Uh, but some of you are old enough who have seen Elvis impersonators, like people who thought Elvis was like the greatest thing ever, and they admired him and they honored him and they tried to imitate him so much that they turned into him. And it's scary, right? It's just scary. Um, uh, there actually, though, are Christian, uh, Christian parallels, right? And uh, when uh, people are learning how to preach, Oftentimes, young preachers, and sometimes even old preachers, um, they, they admire certain styles and certain kinds of preaching. And one of the dangers of when you first start preaching is that you tend to look just like the person you, you, you admire most as a preacher, and you kind of use their inflections, and you maybe dress like them. And uh, I remember one time seeing this guy. This guy wasn't actually a young preacher. He was an old, older preacher. But in, within three seconds, I knew who his favorite preacher was in the world. And it happened to be John Piper. And, and I love John Piper, but actually John Piper uh, imitator is almost as bad as an, as an Elvis imitator. Uh, and this guy just was, it was annoying to see this guy trying to be John Piper. You know, it was scary, right? But he obviously respected him and it was very influenced. And so it, it kind of rubbed off on, on how he preached. Well, we are invited by God to worship him, right? And the book of Exodus is an instruction manual in worship. And God is inviting the people of Israel to worship him. And uh, God intends that that worship would impact them in a way that it would be life-changing and life-transforming. Uh, but to do that right, it was important that they worship God aright. Uh, and, and we also are invited to worship God, and we are to worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, uh, it's not going to work if we don't worship him as he truly is. Uh, and and the, the, the risk and danger for us is that we kind of make God in our own image. We shape him and fashion him in a way that we like. It's not really who he truly is. And, uh, and so we conform ourselves to uh, a fake, an imitation, not the real thing. But God wants us to uh, be like him and he wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth as he really is. And so it is a big deal that we, we worship him properly, that we understand and have a clear grasp of, what, uh, of who he is, but also how he has called us to worship. Uh, and we live in a day and an age where, um, you know, we, we, we like doing things our own way. And in fact, uh, in the early days of CCF, I would get this comment a lot, because in the early days, if you were here way back at the very beginning, which most of you weren't, but it was a bit of a circus back then. And uh, there was this idea that, you know, real worship was like spontaneous and somewhat chaotic. Like if you organize it or plan it too much, that that 
kills the spirit, right? And that really good worship was when you just show up and you would let the spirit move and kind of just let it go, right? And so it would kind of go like this on a Sunday morning. Somebody would get up and maybe they'd sing a song and somebody would say, somebody, does somebody like to preach? Boom, you know, Say would get up. Hey, I got a sermon. And maybe he'd preach for a half hour, 45 minutes. And then somebody else would say, anybody else? Like, but here it's like lunchtime. And we're like, no, no, no. But sometimes somebody else would get up. Hey, I have a word. You know, and sometimes it was very interesting words, right? And um, there's this idea that that was spiritual. But is that really spiritual? Is that really, are, are we allowed just to kind of make this up as we go? Is worship really just about ex- an expression of who we are? Can we be like super creative and inventive in our worship? Or does God have a blueprint or a layout, a plan for worship that he intends us to follow? Those are important questions. And uh, of course, we can swing to extremes. You know, some people are so planned, so structured, so organized, they're mostly just dead, right? Like nothing's, nothing, you know, goes out of the, there's no creativity, there's no variation. Uh, and we all have kind of experienced that, and it feels stifling, right? So how do we find this place where our worship is alive and dynamic and truly uh, entering into God's presence? Um, well, uh, it does matter. So our worship does matter, and, and how, how we worship matters. And um, in, in, in the time when Moses wrote this, when Leviticus was written, uh, of course, there were lots of religions, there were lots of gods, and uh, it's important for us to get the context of what's happening in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. The, uh, God had called out Abraham. He had set aside Abraham's descendants as a chosen people uh, who he was calling and leading into covenant relationship and into their own kingdom. Uh, but, but they were, uh, they, they weren't, uh, they didn't have a religion, right? They didn't, they didn't have a way to worship God. They knew very little about him. They didn't, uh, as far as we know, have a Bible. Maybe they had some oral traditions or some histories, but they didn't really know how this worked. And what they had seen all around them was the worship of, of idols. And uh, the way it worked in those days, all the religions uh, had this concept of God as not a, uh, an all-powerful, loving, generous, gracious God, but what they had was these pictures of these gods who were local and somewhat loco, <laughs> somewhat crazy. And they were very selfish, but uh, given too much power. And they controlled things, but they didn't control everything. They controlled specific things like the weather or the sun or the floods or uh, fertility. And so worship uh, primarily focused on convincing these gods to give you what you want. And these gods were a bit fickle, and they were a little hard to, to guess. Uh, but the goal was to make them happy enough to, that they would give you what you wanted. So things like good crops, fertile flocks, good weather, protection from your enemies, victory over your enemies. And so they would engage in practices that would uh, somewhat feel, make the gods feel indebted. So they would feed the gods, because everybody knows gods get hungry, and so you feed them what they want. Uh, but sometimes the gods might de- demand extreme, uh, extreme offerings. So it was not unusual or uncommon to give uh, human sacrifices, or at the very least to offer your own human blood by cutting yourself and by offering your own blood. Right? Uh, and all this was done to manipulate the gods. 
Of course, the temple prostitution was very common. And it was very common practice that if you went to the temple and slept with a prostitute, that it would uh, make the God uh, think about fertility. and He would make your sheep have lambs, right? And that, that's, that's what worship was in those days. Um, what's interesting about the, the book of Leviticus is that it's nothing like that, right? God is unique. He is not like these other gods. He is unique in his character. And his worship is also unique. And you don't see God prescribing, you know, you better offer your firstborn literally on the altar to me. You better be cutting yourself. And I want to see your own human blood flow to uh, And then maybe I'll give you what you want. We learn that God has already entered into covenant with them. And he's promised to take care of them and to watch over them and to provide for them. And so worship was not about trying to get God to give you stuff. Okay, that's a good place to stop right here. Let me say that again. Worship is not about getting God to give you stuff. And even sometimes in Christianity, we, we go there, right? We, we, we read our Bible and we pray thinking, if I go through all the right steps, God's going to give me stuff. He's going to bless me. But that was never the heart of worship. And when you go all the way back to the book of Leviticus, we see that what God prescribes was not about convincing God that somehow you're worthy of his blessing or his gift or his protection. Right? Instead, worship, worship actually had a very different uh, focus. Very different focus. And uh, as we look at this passage, we're going to see uh, the unique God who we worship and the unique focus and the order that comes with worship. There is a plan and an order that's prescribed in this. Now, of course, we don't worship the same way they did in Leviticus, and I'm not saying that. But I think there is for us here a picture of what worship should be about. So let's look at it. Um, uh, These verses um, actually go through, it's kind of a rerun. Uh, First five, first six chapters, actually, up through chapter six, verse seven, he talks about the five main offerings that they could bring. You guys know what they are? You might have been preaching these. You should know this, right? Right, the burnt offering. Then there was, right, the sin offering. So you guys got this down. Then there was the guilt offering, the fellowship offering. And I'm missing one. Uh, I'm sorry. The grain offering. Thank you. Yes, the grain offering. See, you were listening. Good job. Five main offerings. Uh, and if you read through, if we would have read through six and seven, we would see that he talks about all those offerings again. Uh, why the repetition? Well, the first section was given to the people who were bringing their worship, bringing their offerings, to explain to them how and what they should bring. Uh, now he's focusing, as it says, the Lord spoke to uh, Moses and says, "Say to the sons of Aaron." Right. So the focus here is on the priests and on their role as the ones, as the priests administering these gifts. Right? So that's the focus here. It's not on the worshiper, but on the priest who's, who's uh, managing things and who is presenting uh, these offerings on the behalf of the people and what they should do. Um, and, and one of the things we see in this uh, passage is that there's an extraordinary interest in holiness. And worship uh, of the living God is to be done in holiness. And this is very different from how worship worked in their day. And sadly... I think very different from often how we perceive or conceive of worship today. We are to worship God in holiness. Uh, what is exactly does that mean? Um, uh, as, we, as we think about it, um, there's a contrast 
in, 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 this, in these chapters between the common and the extraordinary. Right? And there was a, a clear separation of things that were common. And common was, was things that could be used for everyday use. But then some things got set apart specially for a special use and a special purpose. And they were considered holy. Right? And that could be anything from an animal sacrifice to a clay pot or a jar to the priest robes to the priests themselves, to actually Israel as a nation. Okay, all of those things could be set apart for special use. Okay, holy, not just common every day, but something sacred or holy, set apart. Um, and I think this uh, is a particularly difficult concept for those of us raised in a true democracy. Okay, now, of course, everybody, every country now says they're democratic. But a true democracy is built on the idea of equality. And I'll let you decide how much your home country really is built on true democracy. But um, the, the ideal of democracy is that everybody is equal. So I'm American, and I know how this works in America. And in America, what it looks like is that uh, the president and, and the poorest homeless guy on the street are really considered equal. Now, they have different jobs and obviously different lifestyles. But uh, the poor guy on the street is not expected to bow down to the president. And the fun thing in America, we're allowed the privilege of mocking the president or making fun of him or whatever, disrespecting him, and it's not illegal. Uh, as Christians, it's probably not really recommended. I think we're to honor those in leadership. But in democracy, you can, you can blast them all you want because we're equal, right? And the president of the United States, uh, leaders are equal. Everybody's just equal, well, one of the problems with this, and this might work in government, it might work in uh, democracy, and certainly there's reasons why uh, the equality of, of humanity is, a, is probably a good thing, a good understanding. But what happens is we lose this sense of the sacred, the special, the, that, there are, that there are two classes. And so for us, it's hard for us to envision what holiness means. And holiness really has this idea of a separate and actually better class. Um, that God is in a class of his own. And, and in, 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 in Leviticus, the only one who's truly holy is God himself. He is holy. He is in a class of his own, and we are not equal with him. And I think one of the problems in our democratic thinking is we've lowered God to this place where he's just like us. And we so see things on this flat plane of equality that it's hard for us to imagine what it really means for God to be holy, to be set apart, to be above and uniquely distinct from all other things. Um, and perhaps um, one of the best examples of this is in, in Thai culture. I think Thai people oftentimes have a better way of looking at this or understanding this because they, they do have different classes. And it's expressed even in language. Right? There is royal language, which if you're studying and learning Thai is a royal pain in the neck, right? Because... You, you work all this time learning like everyday Thai, and then they tell you, yeah, but when you're reading the Bible or talking to the king or talking about a priest, you have to use a whole different set of words. And it's like, I want my money back, right? Because this is too hard. And these are like the harder words. They're, they're hard. If you study Thai, you know this, right? Um, but why is that? Why? Well, because you can't use everyday language when you're talking about the king. He is sacred. He's set apart. He's in his own class. And he is not equal with us. Right? And so they have, I think, in the culture, the sense of honor, of holiness, of the sacred, that maybe we in democratic cultures miss out on. But certainly it was there in Scripture. Right? This idea that we worship God in holiness. And why, 
while uh, they did not have special language to describe God, uh, like, like it does in Thai, uh, certainly they were to treat him as in a different class. Right? They were not equal with him. And you see this, uh, and, and this is where when we read through the book of Leviticus, you know, we just kind of scratch our head and we're going, I just don't get this. Uh, and so it's because we don't understand this, this distinct category of the sacred. That some things are set apart, and when they're set apart, they're uniquely dedicated to that which is holy. So, for example, in, in Leviticus 6, 8 through 11, uh, we read, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his son, saying, this is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth on the altar all night until morning, and the fire on the altar shall keep burning on it. Uh, and then in the morning, the priest shall put on his linen garment, that's his holy garment, uh, and his linen undergarment, also holy, uh, on his body. And he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Because you get the picture, so the priest has to get in his priestly robes, to take out the trash, right? He's got to empty out the ashes, right? And put them beside the altar. But then it says, then he shall take his garment off and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. And I'm thinking, man, what a just waste of time. Like, why don't I just wear the dirty clothes, the everyday clothes to start with? I'm just taking out the ashes, right? But there's this idea that even the ashes and the altar are holy. And so when you're around it, you have to treat it differently, which when you go outside the camp to, to dispose the, of the ashes of the day, you have to change. You've got to put on common clothes, ordinary, everyday clothes. And we think, well, that just seems like really inefficient. Like they're going to be changing their clothes a lot. But there, it was important right, that there's this distinction. We see the same thing again in uh, the instructions of how they're to eat. Um, and it says in verse 24 of chapter 6, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his son saying, This is the law of the sin offering. And the place where the burnt offering is killed shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. So one of the things he sees is that anything that's presented to God as a gift, any of these sacrifices, become holy by virtue of the fact that they are dedicated, they're given to God. And they're put on the holy altar and, it's, and they become holy, set apart sacred, uh, not ordinary anymore, right? Uh, and and uh, this was one of the, and, and as I said, this is for the priests. And a lot of this was for them to know what food, they, what are the offerings they could eat and which ones they couldn't. And the sin offering happened to be one that they could eat. And this is how they lived. This is how they supported themselves. Uh, God didn't need the food, but it supported the priesthood. But, but there was rules about that. It says, the priest who offers it for a sin offering shall eat it in a holy place. It shall be eaten in the court of the tent of meeting. Whoever touches its flesh shall be holy. And when any of its blood splashes on a garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. And the earthenware vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken. But if it is boiled in a bronze vessel, it shall be scoured and rinsed with water. And we're just going, wow, that's like way too many instructions. <laughs> Clay, bronze, washing, right? I'm not going to go into what it all means, but the point is these items were set apart for sacred service, sacred purpose, sacred functions, uh, and they could not be used for everyday, you know, like you boil the pot and the meat for the, the holy sacrifice. You can't use that pot now for like cooking your you know, oatmeal for breakfast, right? for everyday use. It had to be separated. Um, 
Because God is holy. And he is holy. And so there's all these rules about uh, kind of these layers of things. I'm not going to go into all of it. But just to summarize quickly, the Leviticus talks about a lot about the, the unclean and the clean. Right? Common things could fall into one of two categories. It could be clean or unclean. And, and uh, it, it didn't matter. In everyday common use, unclean things were just unclean, and that was okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you wanted to come into the temple and worship God, you had to be, first of all, clean. Right? So there was some process to that. And a lot of things could make you in, unclean. Skin disease, um, certain, certain uh, other diseases, certain kinds of animals, uh, almost every kind of bodily discharge could make you unclean. Right? And if you were to come before God, you had to clean up. You had to wash. And there were prescribed things about how they would clean themselves. Uh, but being clean was not enough. Once you were clean, then as you came into God's presence, it was required that you be sanctified. And um, all this clean and unclean is kind of confusing for us. And you read these rules about this kind of animal with scales and this thing with cloven feet. And it's all confusing. But it was a great picture for them that everyday life could make you dirty. Right? It, could, it could bring a certain pollution or corruption to your life. And, and you needed to, to wash up. In other words, God wanted you to take a bath. He wants you to smell nice and look nice when you come into his presence. But that was true not only externally, but more importantly, it was true internally. That sin ultimately was the thing that, that soiled you, that contaminated you, made you unclean. But that could not be fixed just with washing in water. That required sacrifice. Right? You, were sacrificed, you, were, you were made clean, you were atoned, you were cleansed by these elaborate sacrifices that we talked about. Um, and so the burnt offering ransomed you from death. The sin offering cleansed you from all moral impurity, inside impurity. And the guilt offering paid the debt of sin. Right? So, so first, the unclean needs to make, be made clean, but then we see that the clean needs to be made, made holy, sanctified. And once it was made holy, it was at some level dedicated to God. Now, that dedication didn't always last forever, so when a worshiper came in, they had to go through this process of first becoming clean, and then through the blood being sanctified, and then they could come near to God, come into His presence, and they could worship Him. Uh, but then, of course, they couldn't live there. Only the priests could be there all the time. And they had to go back to their everyday life. But while they were there, and God, they were dedicated to him. They were set apart as, he, as, as, as people who should be focused on worship, exclusively giving their attention and thoughts and focus to him. Right? So here's a question for us. Uh, we obviously don't worship like they did, and we don't get caught up in all these things that they did. But the principle for us is this. Do we worship God in holiness? Right? Do we have this sense of God as a holy God who is unique in every way and it is a category all of his own and is unlike any other being? He's the creator. Uh, and he is not common, everyday, ordinary. Right? I, I fear that oftentimes we come into church on Sunday morning and, and, and I do this. And Sunday just is another day, and church is just kind of another one of our routines that we go through. Go through and it's incredibly common. It's, it's incredibly ordinary. And we don't think anything special of it. Right? 
It's just unfortunate that we can't all afford to build Catholic cathedrals because I think they help with this whole thing, right? These grand cathedrals, and you walk into them, there's this sense of, I'm in a holy place. But the reason we don't do that so much is because we emphasize the people who are the body of Christ. You and I together are the holy temple, not so much the building. But as we come together as God's church, do we come together with the sense that we come in holiness before a holy God. And that there's nothing everyday or common or ordinary about our gathering, even though we do it every Sunday. And maybe you're old like me and you've experienced, I don't even know how many, like hundreds and thousands of Sundays. And you get to be 500 years old, you know, like me. That's how I feel some days. Um, and so we just go through the motions. Okay? But we are, to, we are to come with the sense that we are coming before a holy God and that we together are his, as his people, as his church, are a holy people. And we come in holiness to give God honor and respect and worship and due. That there's nothing ordinary about him and there should be nothing ordinary or common about our worship. Okay? So how do we do that? Well, it... Uh, Some of it has to do with how we arrange things up front, but a lot of it has to do with our heart and our attitude as we enter. Do we have the sense that we're entering into a holy place where God's presence dwells? Or do we just come in chitting and chatting, like a bunch of little bees, you know, kind of clueless as to what is about to take place? I I think Leviticus would tell us it should be an event that is sacred, and there should be a sense of coming into the presence of this God who is so unique, so worthy of extraordinary worship and praise. Um, so we worship God in holiness. Secondly, though, uh, to make this all possible, it was, it was really important that the sacrifice was sufficient. And one of the problems is that as we come in to worship God, there's the reality that we don't come holy, that we come uh, dirty. Uh, We come through our week of having had lots of conversations and lots of things happen in our life where probably we didn't always say what Jesus would have said. (laughs) We we didn't always think pure and holy thoughts. And and we come and there's coming into God's presence. We we are not clean. We are not holy. And so there's a need for uh, the offering of these sacrifices. And of course, the way they would do it is they would come, offer first as we went through this, the burnt offering and then perhaps a sin offering or a guilt offering or maybe all three. They would come and they would first deal with their unholiness so that they would be in a right place, right state of being to worship this holy God. And there's two things about these. When we survey all of these sacrifices that are important, first is they all contain the idea of a substitute. What makes the offering sufficient or good enough that it could clean you is that some animal, some sacrifice died in your place. There was some substitute. Because the penalty of the wages of sin is death. That's the the result of our, our sin against God. And so the cleansing required the death of that animal. And so in each of the sacrifices, even in the fellowship one, which was more a celebration feast, there was um, the killing of an animal as our substitute. Um, But also a big deal was made of blood. 
right? And the blood was significant because blood represented the life of the animal, the life of the creature, uh, the life blood. And it was this picture that it gave up its life. And by giving its life, you are cleansed by the blood. Right? You are washed. Um, and that was true of all these sacrifices. And every time they would come in, there would be this substitution, the substitute who would die in your place. And there was the shedding of blood and there was the applying of its cleansing effects to our life. Um, of course, we don't do that anymore because Jesus is the sufficient, ultimate sufficient sacrifice. Right? Jesus' death, Jesus died once and for all and he perfectly fulfilled all these things. And we know that all of these were pictures, they were object lessons to illustrate what Jesus would one day do. The Bible talks of them as being a shadow and Jesus being the real thing. Uh, so we read in Hebrews 9, 11 through 14, it says, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, which was the, you know, the other tent was a shadow, but a greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify, that is, make clean for the purification of the flesh. If that is true, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So in our worship, uh, what we, uh, what, what's crucially important, and that's why I titled this, this message, Christ-Centered Worship, is that Jesus is enough. And we come into worship, we come in as God's people into God's holy presence, and we come not offering the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but we come on the basis of the blood of Jesus. Right? His atoning sacrifice is enough. He so fulfilled the requirements spelled out here uh, that once was enough. Right? Once was enough. So we don't need to have Jesus die again for us. Praise God for that. Um, his death was enough. One time for all. But it, it works continually. Right? It goes on and on. And so we come made holy through the blood of Jesus and we come into God's presence fully forgiven. Fully forgiven. Do you feel fully forgiven? Honestly, a lot of times I don't feel fully forgiven. Right? I feel like somehow, you know, I need to do something. I need to add something. I need to somehow beat myself up. But it's not necessary, right? Christ's death is sufficient. And whatever we feel like, the goal of worship is claiming his blood as we come into God's presence to make us holy and right, to deal with sin, to cleanse us so that we can come into God's presence with the assurance of full forgiveness, right? That's why uh, Hebrews 4 says, let us then with confidence draw near to God on the basis of the blood of Jesus, right? So there is an order to worship, I believe. 
And now I don't believe that it means like we always have to follow this exact set thing. I think there is room for creativity. And certainly as we write songs and psalms and as we preach messages, we can, we can be creative in that. But there are boundaries. There are limits to that. Um, and, and here's the boundaries. Here's the things we must stay in. Uh, kind of the, the, the sandbox, if you will. It's like you can play in the sandbox using a model that we use at FCF a lot. Um, some other organizations use. We can play in the sandbox. We're good, right? Go out the sandbox or we're missing it. So here's the sandbox, the, the, the order of worship. Uh, and we see that in Leviticus, it is very prescribed and, and, and ordered. Uh, nowhere in Leviticus does it say, you know, if the spirit moves you, just dance around a lot, right? Now, certainly uh, David did that. But here... Worship is very set and prescribed. And here's kind of the steps of it. First of all, there is there's the need for confession. There's this need that as they would come into the temple, they would understand that there may have been, they may have been come in contact with unclean things externally. And certainly there were things internally that contaminated them, that made them spiritually unclean. And they needed cleansing and forgiveness. And so it was important that they came in with this attitude of confession. And I think as we come in, whether it's in your own daily quiet time or it's here on Sunday morning, I think that's a great place to start. Come in quietly before even the worship starts, before anybody's singing. Come in and say, God, I'm coming into, into the presence of a holy God who requires holiness. And I am not. I'm not holy on my own by myself because I mess up. And, and I, I do and I say and I think things that are not good. And so, first thing is we, we confess. But we don't go through the rest of the service beating ourselves up, feeling guilty. No, we move on from confession to the second important step, which is believing and receiving forgiveness. Uh, believing that Jesus' death was sufficient, that his blood is enough. And every Sunday we sing about the death of Jesus and his blood because we want to grab hold of it as the way that we are forgiven, that we are cleansed, that we are washed, that we are made right with God. Right? And, and we receive his forgiveness by believing in what Jesus has done. Not by crawling on our hands and knees up a mountain or by beating ourselves or just telling ourselves what a horrible person we are. As fun as that can be sometimes. <laughs> um, that's not what it's about. It's about believing that Jesus is enough. Right? And when we take that step, we have, we have launched into and made huge progress towards real worship. Because the focus has now been God's provision of forgiveness for us in Jesus. And what's amazing, when you look at what the Israelites did, like most of what they did in worship was, was this whole thing of forgiveness. It wasn't a side thing. It was like the main focus of it was dealing with sin and finding forgiveness through this substitutionary sacrifice and blood. And, and I believe that it's true for us as New Testament believers. Right? This should be a huge focus of our worship, uh, the blood of Jesus. And along with that came asking for help. And it's interesting that in, in the sacrifices that they offer, there was no sacrifice like, okay, you need more, you know, you need a, a guarantee of a successful crop. Well, we've got an offering for that. Okay? There was no such thing. Uh, but they could pray, 
And what they could do is as they prayed and trusted God to take care of them and give them abundant crops and bless them, they could say, God, look, I'm praying and I'm trusting you to provide based on your covenant promises, which you promised you would do for us. And here's the thing. If you do that for me, I'm going to promise back that I'm going to praise you with lots of thanksgiving. That's what a vow was. And so we can pray, we can ask God for help in our life, and he invites us to do that. Um, But the focus is based on his promise, not on some sacrifice that I have to make. God wants to bless you and provide and take care of you, and he's promised to do that. We don't have to make an offering to manipulate God to be nice to us. God is a generous and kind God who wants to bless your socks off in every way. Um, But what we do need, perhaps, is to be a little more grateful, thankful. And the one gift, the one offering, well, actually there was two, the grain offering and the fellowship offering, were not focused on atonement. Instead, they were focused on celebration, on thanksgiving and gratitude. And so I think worship looks like this. We come in with confession. We come in aware of our sin and we confess those things to to God. And then we, we, we claim the blood of Jesus and his forgiveness and his grace. And we acknowledge that Jesus is enough. And, and then it should prompt in us a response of praise and worship and gratitude. Yes, God, thank you that you love me so much that you provided this amazing sacrifice for me, a substitute who died in my place. And that substitute was your own son who died in my place. And so the way it would work with the Israelites is... Um, a huge focus of what they did was, was, was on forgiveness. But it wasn't the end goal. The end goal was to come in through the gates and they would first come to the altar and they would confess and they would do this whole thing with these sacrifices. But then once that was finished, they would go past the altar right before the tent of meeting where God's presence dwelled and they would eat this fellowship meal in God's presence. And it was a celebration meal. And, and the idea was... Wow, I am now in the presence of the living God. And he's invited me to lunch. And we're going to sit down. I'm going to have lunch with God. right? And he is going to fellowship with me and commune with me. And I am going to celebrate him. I'm going to celebrate the joy and wonder of being his child. And being able to come near to him. And of course for them, there were, they, couldn't, they, they could come near but only so close. Right? There, were, there were some layers that they couldn't get to. But, but this is an amazing thing for us. Those barriers have been removed. And we get to come right into the very presence of God now. Right? This is not something that we have to look forward to just in the future when we die and go to heaven, which we will be in his presence then for sure. But we don't have to wait Right? We in worship can come right into God's presence and we can be with him and experience his presence with us. And that's what worship should be, is celebrating him. That's, that's the ultimate goal of worship, to be in his presence, to experience him, to be with him. Right. So let, me, let me close with one thought. Um, and... The first part of chapter 6, it, it actually says three times that they are to keep the fire burning. 
says, uh, this is the law of the burnt offering. The offering shall be on the altar all night until the morning, and the fire shall be kept burning on it, he says. Then later he says, uh, the fire on the altar shall be burning, verse 12, it shall not go out. Then in verse 13, the fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually, it shall not go out. Um, It's a great picture that for the Israelites, um, worshiping God was not like a once a week thing or once a month thing or once in a while thing, right? God wanted to, it to be continual. And the priests had the task and the job of keeping the fire going day and night. And every morning and every night they would put on it a burnt offering. And so I think this is a picture of two things. First, it's a picture of the continual offering and making of atonement. I mean, the burnt offering was the main offering to make atonement. And there was this idea that there was this continual offering of atonement being made. When the worshiper would come in, they would, they would, they would need to experience it. But on the priest's part, it was an ongoing thing. Uh, and we think about Jesus. Jesus, who is our, our high priest, is doing this for us continually. And it's a picture of God's never-ending grace. Never-ending grace. Hebrews 9.24 says this, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Right, so he is that priest. That's a picture of him as our high priest who's there on our behalf. Um, nor was it uh, to offer himself repeatedly. Right? He doesn't have to do that. As the high priest enters the holy places to, uh, every year with the blood of his own. But as it is, Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And that picture is that, that Jesus is in the temple continually as the means of grace for us. Okay? So you don't have to wait till next Sunday to come back to experience this grace and forgiveness. Every day you can do this. Right? Every day, every moment that we fall and sin and mess up, grace is there. It is never ending. It's perpetual and continuous for forever. It'll never run out. Jesus is, is, is that picture, that continual burnt offering being made for us. Right? So that's one thing. But I think the, the other side of it, this picture of keeping this perpetual flame going, keeping the fire going, is also a reminder to us that, uh, that we need to tend to it. Right? The, 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 the priest, uh, only, only, the, only the sacrifice on the altar could make atonement. But it was the priest's job to keep the fire going, right? to keep tending to it, uh, day and night. What a great picture for us of what worship should be. It is not intended to be occasional, part-time. Right? It is to be perpetual. Right? And, and, and the wonderful gift of Jesus is that for us... Um, there is a distinction between the common everyday and the holy. Right? And, and we run the danger of making the holy common and everyday. So making what we do on Sunday morning common is a huge danger. But here's good news. For us, uh, one of the things that we see in this passage is that anything that came in contact with the holy, anything that was dedicated, anything that was laid on the altar... And even the flesh, after it was laid on the altar, even then the meat became holy. And anything it touched became holy. Here's a cool thing. In Christ, everything you touch has the potential of becoming not common, but holy. 
God calls us to elevate everything in our life from just the ordinary and common to the holy. Uh, I learned this early on in my Christian life when I was like 16 years old. And I, I was working, serving. I didn't get paid for it, but I was serving God and at this Bible camp and uh, being a low man on the totem pole. My job was to clean the bathrooms of the whole camp. I tried to clean the whole camp, bathrooms included. And um, kind of a, a, a stinky job at many levels, right? But I would do that. And uh, I don't remember how it came about, if I heard somebody preach on it or I read it in the Bible. But, but God said to me, you know, this can be worship. I'm like, cleaning toilets? <laughs> like, you can't get more common and ordinary and actually unclean than that, right? But, but, but the principle here is that when we as sanctified holy people do these things for God, in service to God, even the most mundane, grungy jobs can be worship. Right? And this is greatly liberating for those things in your life you have to do that you hate, Right? You can make it worship. Right? And not just that, but all things. Right? We are to do everything to the glory of God. Everything has the opportunity to be elevated from the common ordinary to be worship. Right? And that's, that's the model for us for worship. And there is something about morning and evening, about coming to God in the morning and worshiping Him. Coming to Him in the evening and worshiping Him. And following these steps, we confess. You guys remember this? We confess. Then we believe and receive forgiveness. Then we ask for his help. Then we celebrate him by drawing into his presence. And that his presence should linger with us throughout the day and throughout the night. Because he is a, he is a perpetual fire burning night and day on our behalf. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.